good to be with you this morning in this capacity as well, to get to be a dad and also to speak to you from God's Word up here. Um, So if you have a Bible, please open it with me to John chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. Uh, This particular scene at the cross has a lot to do with other crucifixion scenes. There's a lot of crossover, except for Jesus' words to his mother, and presumably to John himself at the end of the passage. Those comments are unique to John. And it's those comments that I want us to consider together this morning. And here's the question I want you to think about as we read the passage. It's a brief passage, so you might not get, get to think about it that long. But here's a question for you. Why does Jesus choose this moment, this particular moment, to transform the relationship between Mary, his mother, and John, his beloved disciple? Why does this moment change the way followers of Jesus are meant to relate to one another? And how does it change us? Let's read it together now. John 19, verses 23 through 27. This is God's word. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven is... You've reminded us already this morning in our liturgy, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word indeed lives and endures forever. We pray that you would feed our souls on that word this morning. You would feed us on the bread of life that has been made flesh for us in the person and work of your son, Jesus. We pray that you would feed us on the grace that lasts, that strengthens us for the joy of knowing you and also the joy of living life together as your family. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? So you met, kind of met my family, if you haven't already. The youngest is Carter, the oldest is John Randall, he's about four, just turned four. And our middle child is Charlie. And about a week ago, um, I was commissioned with the task of staying home with John Randall, our oldest, and Carter, the one who just got baptized, while Jada took Charlie for his two-year appointment. And it was supposed to be an uneventful day. I, I really had hoped, since Charlie was ta- and Carter was taking a nap, I'll do that a lot probably, since Carter was taking a nap, that I could get some stuff done and John Randall could sort of play by himself. And So he was doing his own thing. I think he was polishing up a, his third bowl of Rice Krispies for the morning. And he asked me to wash his hands. If he could go wash his hands. And I said, yes. And this goes on, on and on throughout the day. He washes his hands no kidding, probably 20 times a day. And so he's either a little bit of a germ freak or a very conscientious 
four-year-old. So I'm sitting on the couch reading, um, pencil in hand, and he's on his little Ikea red kitty chair at the sink in the kitchen, and all of a sudden, I hear water hitting the floor loudly, and I just, that's not the, not the sound that hand washing is supposed to make. And so I turn around, and I can see that water is now arcing all the way over the kitchen and hitting the very back of the kitchen wall that's probably 15 feet away. And he's screaming in bloody terror, and I look, you know, kind of around, and what he's done is he has put his arm on the faucet to sort of use it as a lever or a pull-up bar to get the soap, which is on the window seal, and it snapped off. And so it's just flooding the kitchen. And he's screaming, and I think it would be better if you imagine the next part in slow motion, maybe with some chariots of fire in the background. I rose from the couch. And, um, okay, it's three feet away from the kitchen. But I got up from the couch, and with sprinter speed and dexterity, I moved toward the kitchen, and I reached, and I still have my pencil in my hand. So I, I put the book down, but I keep the pencil. And that, that's instinct. You can't teach that. And so I get to the kitchen, and as soon as my feet, all of our floors are hard, hard wood, hit the kitchen, I hit a puddle. And that was it. I'm done. So my feet fly up over my head. And as they're coming down, I actually kick John Randall and the kitty chair in the midsection to the point that he flies up over the counter. You should hear him retell the story. And so I fall on my back, head hits the floor, and I just started working out that morning. And so I was, I mean, literally for six months I haven't touched anything. And I started working out. So I am unbelievably sore already. My back is on the floor, and I look up, and I can literally see him falling out of orbit in the chair coming from a midsection. The pencil flew out of my hand and landed perfectly in a basket on the counter where it belonged. And they landed on me. And um, so there I was, laying on my back on the kitchen floor, soaking wet. Nothing had been fixed at all. The water is still hitting the back wall. My son and chair on top, he is screaming even more loudly now. And every bone in my body now feels like it's broken. And it's really amazing how quick it all happened. It was amazing how quickly I went from viewing myself as the one who was going to save the day, the rescuer, to being on my back with them on top of me, needing now someone to come in and rescue me. I had taken a a bad situation and rushed in, and instead of making the situation better, I'd only managed to make it much, much worse. Now, that's an exaggerated example, but it's something that I have experienced in subtler ways over and over again in my own life. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I am just never the answer I hoped I would be. So often, and this is perhaps true in my vocation as a minister on campus, I see myself like going in trying to fix people and their situations, and I've come away realizing that I was much more of a problem than a solution. That I was the one who deeply needed to be fixed. And even more so, that whole careless, aggressive, here I am to save the day, messianic attitude always makes things worse. It never makes them better. And perhaps there is no other context in which this particular reality is driven more firmly home for us in the context of our own families. Think about it. How often has life in your family convinced you that you can't fix people. You can't even fix yourself. 
How have his life and your family shown you that the only way to survive one another, the only way to live together and to love together, is by grace alone? You see, that's what I think that our passage is really about this morning. Jesus wants us to see, first of all, who our family really is. And that the survival, and not just the survival, but the flourishing of this family is not based on your strength or your skill set or even your passion and your zeal. But on the grace of God alone. So let's look at our passage together a little more closely and see exactly how this plays out for John as the author. So I mentioned earlier that these words that Jesus speaks to Mary and to John are recorded only for us in John's gospel. They are utterly unique to his narrative. And so it begs the question, what in the world does John want want us to see here? As Jesus hangs condemned on a Roman cross, and in this hour of tremendous suffering, this is what it's all sort of led up to, he turns to his mother and his disciple, and he rearranges their relationships. What's going on here, and why is it important? I think, first of all, it would be wrong for us to ignore the personal dimension of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is caring for a grieving mother. He is honoring her, even in this, his greatest hour of dishonor. And once again, what John is confronting you with is a Savior, a Messiah, whose compassion is never exhausted, even as his own life is draining away. But that's not John's main reason for including the remarks. You see, throughout the gospel, John has taken great care for you and I to see that Jesus' mission is to create a new kind of community constructed upon a whole new understanding of love. So, for example, in John 13, we hear Jesus say this. A new commandment that I give you. Okay, what's, what's, gonna, what's this new commandment going to be? That you love one another. Haven't we heard that before though? Just as I have loved you. There's the newness. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. And if you remember. These words actually come on the heels. No pun intended. Of that dramatic foot washing scene. Right? In the upper room. Where Jesus undresses himself. You know the story. He takes on the role of the most menial of household servants. And there in that room, Jesus actually gives concrete shape to the quality of his love. And here's what we learn. It is not a love that is built on sentimentality. It's not a love that's built on romance. These are reeking, you know, dirty toes shoved in his face. It's a love that's built on sacrifice. His is a love that is constructed upon toil and effort. And that theme continues throughout John's gospel. In John 15, just a few minutes after the foot washing scene, we're still in the upper room and you have the long passage of the metaphor of the vine and the branches. And intermingled in there, we hear Jesus give these words to his disciples. This is my commandment. We just heard this. That you love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes a bit further. No one has greater love than this. Than to lay down one's life for his friends. And then in John's first epistle, as he's grown older, matured a little bit, 
he summarizes the words in this way. Here's what he says. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. In other words, I've been telling you this for years. (laughs) We should love one another. We know love by this. How? That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Little children, let us love, not in word or in speech, but in truth and in action. We could go on, and I could pile up more examples for you, but I think you get the picture. We don't need to be here at this particular point all morning. Here's the point. Jesus himself has come to create a community, a new community. And it's a community that's come from love. It's a community of love. And it's a community that's actually moving towards love. The shape of which is not nice, warm, sentimental, romantic feelings, but sacrifice. Sacrifice all the way unto death. And so what in the world does all of that have to do with our scene this morning? Well, I think there are two important things. The first is this. When Jesus tells his mother to behold her new son, John, and when he turns to John and says, behold, your new mother, Mary, he is telling all of us this, all of those who would be gathered around the cross. The church is a new kind of family. In other words, we don't relate to one another as those who just happen to share a similar interest in a Jewish Messiah. The church is not a club. The church is a family. And as such, surely as John and Mary knew, we belong to one another now regardless of how we feel about one another. As one writer put it, we can choose our friends, right? We can choose our friends. But we don't choose our brothers and sisters. They are given to us, whether in family or in community. You know, I think baptism really is, um, I know it's sentimental right now, but I think baptism is a wonderful picture of this. So when Rich carried Carter around the theater this morning, guess what he wasn't doing? He wasn't taking him shopping, right? You weren't a buffet line where he just sort of got to come and sniff you out and decide which of you he wanted now to live his life with. Like, I'll take some of you in the front row, not you in the back corner, not enough in common, certainly not the ones that, you know, sit back there. No. Carter wasn't going shopping. He was being introduced to you as a son and you as his family members. This is the reality. He didn't choose you as a family any more than Mary chose to be a mother to John or John chose to be a son to Mary. It is a family that has been given to him that he has been born into now according to what? The word of Jesus Christ. And along those lines, I think it would be very important for us to say this. If it's true that Jesus wants us as a church to think of ourselves as a family, if that's the picture that we're supposed to operate on in terms of how we relate to one another, not as a club but as a family, then it should make us especially cognizant of the lonely and the displaced and the strangers among us. Here's what I mean. There are those in our midst for whom the church never feels like a luxury. 
There are those among us for whom the church never just feels like another social option on a Sunday. I think that we could say this is the case for Mary and John as they watch their only hope. The one who has held their worlds together being ripped away from them. For people like these, the church can't afford to just talk about being a family, right? The church has to actually be their family, the ones with whom they can actually mourn the disappointment of losing a job. The ones with whom they can celebrate a birthday. The ones with whom they can ask for help in moving furniture around and practice generosity with their gifts and their finances. The ones from whom they can hear the word of God, not just from the pulpit, but on a Wednesday morning when their life is falling apart. And perhaps more than anyone else in our congregations, it's these folks. The ones who can't afford to just hear us talk about the church being a family. It's these folks in the gracious providence of God that he has given us to teach us what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing I think we learn here. Here's Mary and John, and now they're mother and son. The church isn't a social option, it's not a lifestyle enclave, it's not a new club for you to join. The church is your family. Second is this. The most striking part of the scene is what makes the church into a family. You know, it's no coincidence that Jesus picks this particular moment to rearrange these particular relationships. And this is what he wants us to see. The cross is the moment that binds us together. The cross is the instrument that actually makes us who we are. The cross is the very love, remember, that John has been preparing our hearts to understand for 19 chapters now. And so what makes the church a family, what makes New St. Peter's a church of Jesus Christ is not the reality or not the reality that we have a lot of things in common. It's not common preferences. It's not a zip code. It's not the neighborhood that we grew up in. It's not the fact that we've landed on a style of worship. It's not the fact that we've all been blessed here with a gift of very, excuse me, a um, the reality of having very gifted pastors. It's not a dynamic youth program. It's not a place where we feel the most comfortable. It's not a beautiful sanctuary that we all wish we had. It's not even this. This is hard to say as a PCA minister. It's not even precise doctrinal formulation. And look, I really like some of those things. But what makes us a family is none of them. It is the sacrificial love of Jesus poured out for us on the cross. And that is it. That is the only tie that binds us together. And this is why the moment's so important. Because as John looks up and hears Jesus say, this is your new mother, and as Mary looks up and hears Jesus say, this is your new son, what they're meant to see is that what I'm doing here shows you how to be a family. That these are your directions. This doesn't just institute the family. This is the shape of your family life together. 
that you are to be shaped by the love of the crucified one. Now, how does this play out for us? How does the cross actually, practically, give birth and teach us to be a family? Well, it happens in several ways, and most of those ways we actually learn as we're here in worship and meant to sort of carry out forward in the rest of our weeks. But I want to mention one of those ways here this morning, and I'm going to steal it. I don't know if it's stealing if you'd name it, but I'm going to steal it from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, as you may know, is a German pastor who was martyred under the Nazi regime toward the end of World War II. And he wrote, he wrote the best little treatise on Christian community that I think you could probably find. It's called Life Together. You can't find a lot of them, but here's one. It's called Life Together. And in that particular book, one of the things that Bonhoeffer goes to great pains to tell you and to tell me is what it means to be a family of those who live under and are staring up at the crucified one. Those who live under the cross of Jesus Christ. And one of the implications he points out most frequently is that we know, we know as a family, that we're really living under the cross if confession, confession, has become one of our most dominant family practices. Not just in worship, the place where we learn the language of confession, but outside as well. And here's what he means by confession. Let me just kind of lay it out for you. It's opening ourselves up and learning to mourn our wickedness in the company of other people. And at the same time, being able to listen to and receive and bear up the brokenness of our brothers and sisters together. And Bonhoeffer says it like this. Listen to this. Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, we agree with that, right? That sin and misunderstanding are a burden to us. Even when those things happen, even when they burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother, so he's talking about someone else, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Listen to this. Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Here's his conclusion. Thus the very hour of our disillusionment, the very hour of our frustration, of our despair with other people becomes unbelievably valuable for us. It becomes salutary because it so thoroughly teaches us that neither of us, none of us, can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed, which really binds us together. He says, I'm speaking about the cross of Jesus Christ. So according to Bonhoeffer, what binds us together as a family, experientially, It's when we learn how to throw the weight of all of our weaknesses, the weight of all of our doubts, the weight of all of our failures, the weight of all of our shortcomings and fears onto the cross of Jesus Christ to witness in an experiential way the power of the grace of God to actually bear us up. Now this is how Bonhoeffer ends the paragraph. Here's the last line, and it's my favorite. It says this, When the morning mists of dreams vanish. When the morning mists of dreams vanish. Then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. In other words, here's what he's doing. He's inviting you to ask this question. What did you dream the church would be for you? What did you dream it would be? 
we dream it would be a busy place where all of our needs would be met? Did we dream it would be a safe environment where we could run away from the hazards of life out there? Did we dream it would be a pep rally, perhaps, where you'd come in every week, and I'm sorry you'll be disappointed here, and be motivated to feel better about yourself and win at life? Here's what Bonhoeffer says. When that dream vanishes... When it's destroyed by the grace of God at the cross of Jesus Christ, it's then and only then that the bright day of Christian fellowship actually begins to dawn on us. Here's what he means. Christian community, real community, rises to life from the ashes of all of our broken dreams. And that's what the practice of confession does for us, I think. It takes our foolish dreams about who we are. It takes our foolish dreams about who other people are. It takes our foolish dreams about the life that we thought Jesus wanted us to share together. And confession burns them as heretics. And it forces us to throw the weight of ourselves. The weight of our shattered romances. Perhaps in a way that no other practice does under the cross of Jesus Christ, to see if the grace of God can really live up to its promise. If it's as good as it's billed to be. The promise of making us a family. Bearing us up as a family. And making us to flourish as a people. On grace alone. A couple of months ago, um, was John Randall's birthday. I need to pay him for all this material this morning, I know, but... And um, one of the gifts he received from his grandparents was a rope swing. And I'd never seen these before I moved to Dallas, but they're everywhere. So I know you know what I'm talking about. They're just the single rope attached to a spring and a disc, right? And so um, I spent a whole Saturday afternoon putting that up, and, which is a really sad confession because it's really just three things you have to do. <laughs> Here's the whole assembly. It's rope to tree. It's rope to spring, and it's rope to seat. That is very simple. Unless you can't tie a reliable knot. And of course, that was my fear. And so I'm thinking I've got three opportunities to put my son on a swing for his birthday and swing him and wish him happy birthday as he sails over our neighbor's chain link fence. And so what did I do? Well, I tied the knots, and before putting him on there, I got on there myself. And at first, I just sort of Swung around, sitting down, very lightly with my feet on the ground. And then I put all of my weight on it, put as much pressure as I could. And then finally what I did was I just stood on it. You're supposed to stand on it. So I stood on it, and I jumped up and down. And I watched those knots in the process, and here's what happened. Those knots just kept getting tighter and tighter. And that's how you know you've tied a good knot. The more pressure you put on it, the tighter it gets. The more it refuses to give in and to let you go. The cross of Jesus Christ is the knot tied by the grace of God to hold onto us as a family of sinners. And as such, it's the cross that allows us to actually be a real family. To have the courage to open ourselves up with one another 
and to throw the weight of ourselves, the weight of our doubts, the weight of our weaknesses, the weight of our failures, the weight of our frustrations, the weight that we're even afraid to confront for ourselves, all of that weight onto the back of the Son of God and to see, to see for ourselves if under the pressure of all those burdens, that knot doesn't get tighter and tighter. Refusing to give in. Refusing to let us go. Now, according to John, what makes us a family, what makes us a church, is not our strength, it's not our gifts, it's certainly not our ability to fix one another. It's the power of the grace of Jesus Christ to bind us together in our frailty and in our weakness. And in that love, to learn what it means to grow up together. We are a family born of the word of Christ, just as Mary and John learned, and made to live and to flourish by grace alone. There really is no other answer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us, and we thank you that your word is not dormant, that it doesn't hang lifeless from the lips of a bumbling preacher, but that actually transforms people in their relationships. We see that even as you were probably in your most humiliated place at the cross, as you spoke to John and to Mary. And we pray even as you gave it to them that you would give us that same faith to live together under your cross, to find our unity, to find the pattern for how we do life together at the cross so that we might better know what it means to be your family bound together by your love. Would you give us the virtues of the gospel that we might live together as your prophets, as your priests, and as your kings in the world that you've made. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.